Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Welcome to the Making Data Simple podcast. This is where you never know what you're going to get. That's the brilliance of it, right? We're recording end of November. I hope everybody is good, safe, healthy, stay healthy. Today, I have Claude Eusti with me. Claude is a partner in IBM Global Business Services uh, with Watson Data and AI Platform practice for the public sector. His primary clients tend to be in health and in human services, and he has over 30 years of experience in the government and healthcare industries. Welcome, Claude. How are you, man? I'm great. Thank you. So when we start each podcast, this is your time to pat yourself on the back and outline any and all experience you have to to wow the audience. Or just give us your experience, if you would. Sure. Several different backgrounds. I grew up in IBM. Uh, so I started off as an engineer. I did manufacturing engineering for years on some of our computers. And then I went into chip design, and I designed microcircuits for a time. And I decided I wanted to get out in the world to get to meet people, more so than being in one of our labs. Uh, so I joined our services and sales organization. And from that point forward, I've been working with clients in healthcare. I've worked with pharma companies, with uh, insurance companies, with healthcare providers, and most recently, the last 15, 20 years in the federal space, uh, working across all the federal, the different branches of our uh, federal government. Are you federally cleared? I am not currently federally cleared, no. So I presume you have folks that you work with that must Correct. be there. That do the day-to-day -day work that have TS or some other clearances necessary. So were you ever in development prior or services has been your mainstay for the most part? No, I did development. I'll dredge up history. First computers I worked on was an IBM computer called the Series 1. It was a process controller. And I worked in Boca Raton where we had a laboratory at the time. We manufactured the Series 1. At the time, we also manufactured the IBM PC at Boca Raton. So I worked on that for a time in uh, microcircuit design. Uh, and then we acquired Rome Corporation years ago, and I worked on microcircuit design for switches. That was the last technology job I had, and then I moved over and got into the services and sales side. I noticed that that all makes sense. You were an electrical engineer like myself. Mm -hmm. uh, you started out with hardware, sounds like, mm -hmm. and uh, what made you go to services? I'm curious because I'm in services now, so I'm, <laughs> I'm comparing notes here. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, I'll tell you a story. I Way, way, way back we used to get these trouble reports from the field that said, uh, my machine doesn't work. And occasionally it was required that somebody from the lab or the development group would go out to see the situation uh, because the problem was beyond what the service tech in the field thought they would repair uh, credibly. Uh, and I was sent out, I remember I went to an Air Force base and a couple of other locations to go out, look at the machine and say, so what happened here? What could we do better? that would make it reliable in these circumstances. And it was a lot of fun, right? You got to sit down, talk to a client, they'd tell you what was going on. You know, it wasn't just the engineers talking to the engineers. And I really enjoyed it. I found it to be a lot of fun. And I liked the challenge of trying to figure things out on the fly, especially what would we do about this? And that prompted me to say, I love the engineering, I like the design work. But I like the interaction, talking to people about how they use something, and it changes your perspective 
quite a bit about how you solve problems. And that's what drew me into the, the field services organization. So I've been in development most of my career. In fact, I made the switch to services this year. And I used to say, you know, I've been in development, but I've also done support, et cetera. I used to say support was one, you know, software support, one of the toughest roles, particularly in the data business where data repositories can go down for like a hotel or, or a, an emergency room type of situation anyway. Um, now that I'm in services, very similar in the, in the sense that uh, you get to work with clients, but a lot of pressure. You got to know your stuff. You got to do it in front of clients. And then you got the sales angle. It may be, I mean, it's given support a run for its money. It's, it's a tough business to be in, but fun. Good, oh, yeah. rewarding. Exactly. Exactly right. I wanted to dive down on your experience in AI, data, and government. We'll, we'll talk to healthcare as well. I tend to, to go through, do a little research. And I was looking at some government data. In February 11th of 2019, we signed the American AI Initiative, and it consisted of five things. One was driving technology breakthroughs. Secondly, uh, driving the development of technical standards. Third is skills in industry. Fourth is protecting American values through privacy, which is interesting because I don't know that all countries are the same there. And then five is protecting U.S. technical advantage in AI while still working with other international environments that, that support innovation, et cetera. And what occurred to me in that, the reason I give you that is, is that just happened in February 2019. And it, and it occurs to me, like, like a lot on the government side, it seems like they're slow on the uptake. In fact, I w- then I went a little bit further. Just in 2019, it was the first budget request for named artificial intelligence. In 2018, that's when AI was featured for the first time in the national security strategy. And also in 2018, it was the first time it showed up in the national defense strategy. The reason I give all this, so you're working in government. I got to believe the, the, the listeners are out there are thinking, you know, boy, it's going to be slow on the uptake. Is that your experience or do you have a completely contrary experience that you, as you were, you've been working with the, the government entities that you've been working with? I think it varies across government. Uh, so I wouldn't say government is an entity. It, government is many, many different flavors and types. Uh, and the obvious ones, right, is when you take a look at where it lives. Uh, there's a federal government, there's state government, municipal governments. They're independent of each other in many ways, but they have some common purposes. They're uh, trying to accomplish many of the same things in some level of collaboration. If you dice that up and you start saying, in what type of government is AI being adopted and being embraced aggressively today, uh, it's certainly being done where it can protect lives, where it prevents harm. Uh, So if you think about uh, defense and intelligence, there's an effort to try to understand data. And that's important because there's a lot of things going on and we want our leaders to be informed. Uh, So there, I think you would find a ready audience for wanting to understand more and use it. There are other parts of government where there are some serious ramifications about using artificial intelligence in a well-intended way, but that has bad consequences. Not to say that doesn't matter in intelligence and DOD, it does. And in those places, I think that there's a 
conservatism, which is appropriate, that says, I need to understand some things. And, and the kind of things that government leaders want to understand, for example, is transparency. Uh, if I get a recommendation to go do something, can I understand how that data arrived? Can I see what the source of this was that let me uh, draw this conclusion? It needs to be explicable. There can't be the answer is button that pops up. You need to be able to say, and the rationale is, and as an expert, I support it and I will use that input. And then obviously there's privacy concerns. There's some data that you should not be mining about people to use an analysis of them. They have private privacy rights. And then there's policy. And, and every agency has a policy question to answer, which is what role does artificial intelligence play? When you take all of that in combination, you might say, gee, they're taking a long time. And maybe you could push forward on some things. I, I would tell you, I think in some places they're pushing forward. Uh, in other places, they're looking to understand. Uh, so government can't afford to make a venture on how to handle social security benefits with the assumption that it may be right. They, they really do have to get that right. Uh, so when you start applying AI to that, it has to be something with great confidence versus something that's going to cause a lot of frustration because it may give disparate results. It may penalize people inappropriately. Those sort of things need to be resolved. And I think there's still some question in government to get to a high level of confidence. What I would tell you is there is movement and there is a recognition in government that AI can be very helpful and very useful and they want to adopt it and embrace it, but they want to adopt it and embrace it in a, in a very structured fashion, which is not unusual for government as new technologies arise. On what context are you defining AI? And secondly, what, speaking of government entities, which entities are you working with regularly? I think of AI as augmented intelligence. And I'll put this in the context of government. Uh, I don't think that there's an appetite for something called artificial intelligence to take the role of a human making a decision. The, the role of an AI system is to help a person who is doing something do it better, gain efficiency, produce better answers, and essentially serve the people better. That's the message behind AI. An autonomous does it all by itself turn it over to the machine type of answer. And within government, most of my time is spent within federal agencies, whether it's the, the VA, HHS, uh, other organizations like that, that operate both in terms of providing direct service to people, but also setting policy on behalf of the nation and how we approach solving problems. How do you see the protection of data and privacy security? Because the reason I ask that question is because I know enough about AI. I manage a team in development that created, you know, some of the technologies around AI and bias detection, et cetera. Uh, and the moral of the story is the more data you have, the better decisions you make. It's a statistical relevance type uh -huh. of deal. How can the government resist themselves by not trying, you know, naturally just it can happen organically. They just want to keep getting more data because that's going to better the algorithms and the models that they have that in turn could be justified to say, hey, it's going to better your life. Where's the balance? I know it's a tough question, but I mean, that's one thing that does you know stand out when we're talking about government and AI. 
I don't think anybody's figured it out, first of all, right? So I'm going to give you my opinion. I think, as you said, it's a balancing act that people are still sorting through. Uh, I think the danger is it becomes a race to the bottom, which is everything's available, just pump it into the system, and somehow that will give us better answers. But the fact is that in many cases, just feeding a greater quantity of data doesn't necessarily produce the best outcome for individuals. What we've found, I think, repeatedly when we train AI systems is there needs to be some very thoughtful curation of data, and there needs to be some boundary that says up to what point is it legitimate to import information into an AI system that can be used to make a decision. I think one of the obvious ones that's become very prominent these days is facial recognition. I believe in some countries it's very pervasive. Mm -hmm. Systems like that are on every street corner. In the United States, there's been tremendous pushback against it, and legitimately so, because there were a lot of mistakes being made by those systems, and the consequence of those mistakes could be bad. So saying that because some country has decided to take photographs of people all the time on the street and put it into their systems and then feed it into AI to make determinations about your movements and where you're at, it's better AI, I'd, I'd contest that. I don't think it is. I think actually what it does is it causes people to have less confidence and more suspicion about AI systems and what they know and what they know that's not right about them and what it's doing to create answers that are harming them. I believe ultimately you got to go back to those principles we were talking about before, the transparency and the explainability and the mm -hmm. policy where you know what's in the system about you. I have... Uh, no problem if I'm driving down the road and I make a mistake and I get pulled over and I get a ticket for it, everything, you know, I got to go resolve it. I'd have more of a question if it was, well, our, our AI system picked up these images and we think it's you, so here's your ticket, pay it, and, you know, we'll be on our way. But if you want to contest it, prove our AI system wrong. Well, I'm not going to probably buy into that quite as easily. Knowing the state of AI today, uh, I would like to see something more definitive before I admit to having done something wrong like that. Maybe it's supporting someone making a decision that says, well, you know, we saw this, plus we have this other information. But I, I think ultimately what you got to have is a system where the citizen buys in to the explainability, the transparency, and the adequate policy controls over the AI. And if it has less data than somebody else, so be it. I at least am in the camp that where you just gather data aggressively with or without consent and feed it into AI produces systems that people aren't going to feel very good about, trust, or want to use. It becomes a bit like a profile that you don't want out there and I don't think we would accept that as a society. I don't know that it has sustainability in other societies. Well, no, I think it's a good opinion. I think transparency and explainability is going to be paramount for both the private and public uh, sector. However, I think it could lend itself to, you know, going back to the policies that may need to be developed. You know, it could slow down some of those policies. Okay. Uh, I think, for example, we're still waiting for some of them and people are already off to the races. It's interesting, I think. They've got to catch up rather quickly uh, as we're dealing with all the social issues that we're dealing with, you know, and how, you know, data is being collected. I don't know if you have any more to add on that, but uh, that's kind of my opinion. We've got to get our stuff together here. Just one additional thought. I think there's also 
something you have to consider about the use of the AI, right? If yeah. we're talking about people on the street, you and I walking around doing our daily business, we want these controls as we interact with things. If we're sending because of some threat our soldiers to defend us, the standards for that AI may be different. The government may decide, look, we have to collect some data. It just is a circumstance that it needs to be. And there's some video we're going to collect because we don't want our people killed. And we want to create the least harm we can. Well, let's just get this settled and get out of here. That's a different situation than me driving down the street, you know, taking a, a drive somewhere. So I think we need to balance that. And, and, I, and that, I think, you know, people are thinking about that, obviously. Yeah, yeah, no, some of it is, you know, you got to make decisions, you know, immediately based on that image that we're talking about. You know, an interesting use case that I've often thought of, I've got a, a friend, they've got a lake home, and it's a core lake. It's a U.S. Army core lake. So in other words, they manage it. And like 50 foot of the property to the lake is core property. You can't touch it. You know, it's all trees and wooded. But there's a lot of people that you know, want to tear down those trees, right? Because they want to see the lake. But, you know, that's, you know, it's like a $75,000 fine if you do that. They're trying to protect the environment and all that stuff. But I've often thought a perfect use case for image AI is to have drones, you know, taking pictures and then they can see the before and after almost immediately around the edges of those lakes. But that's a perfect use case. So let's talk about use cases that you see are the most prominent the thing, use cases that come to mind for me is, you know, pollution, environment, the chatbots, you know, like our Watson Assistant chatbot, for that matter, helping, helping uh, government agencies, you know, take phone calls, et cetera, particularly in a pandemic when you're getting 5,000% more, more calls than you had in the past, you know, back office work like everybody, emergency services, just fighting pandemics in general. What do you see as the prominent use cases in government right now? Oh, you touched on a couple of them. I'll tell you, the one I think has the most potential isn't really going to be visible. It'll be in the background, if you would. And that is in most government processes, they are challenged by the volume of activity. If you think about a claim, if you were uh, filing for a disability claim, if you're filing for uh, benefits of some sort, often numerous documents are required, numerous forms are required. All of these are received, some of them digitally, some of them need to be scanned. Then somebody has to look at them, organize them, do something with them, move them to the next step. Then somebody else has to look at them. If it was small volume, containable with people. If you have high volume, it's enormous. Uh, sometimes it's as simple as classifying things. Work place injuries. Somebody has an injury at the workplace where uh, an item fell on them. It needs to be reported. It happens a lot. Consequently, the processes that you see in government sometimes take longer than people want. But if you can take those activities, which don't really require a person to classify a document or to read a document and say, ah, somebody sent me a power of attorney and it's complete filled it out correctly, I can use this. Let me put it where it's supposed to be stored so that somebody can look at it and make a decision. All of those things fall into the area of automation. We've seen robotic process automation start to take hold in the federal government. We're increasingly seeing what we call intelligent automation. I think other people use the term as well. 
And that's, what if the process is a bit complicated and you want to make various decisions? Intelligent automation gives you that flexibility. I think we're going to see a lot of that getting adopted behind the scenes. Uh, so if I were to call a chatbot and say, I'm trying to get a card sent to me, I lost it, can you send me a replacement? It's not just talking to the bot to have the conversation that says, oh, yeah, send a note to. It's more of, can you confirm your identity? Because if you can, I'll generate it for you now, and it'll be in the mail. Or if you were looking for the status of something, I'll go into this system, get the information, look at it, and answer it for you. I'll do something for you right now. And we've done this even at the county level for where people want to submit a request to suspend service or activate service. They can do that. Uh, it's a combination of the chatbot and some integration to the systems that control that. Those are the kind of functions I think we're going to see in government that power the day-to-day -day work of government. And the intention is not that you automate people out. The intention is there is a huge amount of work out there that people have to do making decisions. Usually, it takes them a while to get to that because they're busy doing all this busy work of organizing and collecting and collating and whatever, the data. If we can automate that and get it packaged right, so that a person can look at it and say, I got what I needed. Here's the answer. Let's move on. That is going to make a big difference. And that's where it's augmented intelligence. How do you help the person do what they do best rather than stick the person in a job, which is overwhelming in volume and people aren't 24 by 7 automatons. So we can do better with the automation driven by AI there. I think that's probably one of the biggest opportunities that we're going to see in government. When you say that, is that mostly surrounded some of the chatbot? Is that what you're suggesting? Or It can. Uh, I, I think it sits in many places. It can be from system to system. It can be sitting behind one system that needs to talk to another system and work needs to be done in between in order to transfer data. A lot of organizations have uh, uh, ERPs and they're managing quite a bit, but there's still data sitting outside of it in spreadsheets and all of the sources. Can that be automatically organized and used to facilitate getting work done? So, uh, you know, key areas that I see is automating the processing of documents intelligently uh, so that it flows through efficiently. Financial operations can be augmented so that they uh, work more efficiently. A lot of back office, uh, you know, one of the common processes in government is Freedom of Information Act, FOIA. So I want to see my documents, redact them, send them to me. Sounds trivial, hard to do. Lots of them, sometimes a lot to redact. That's the kind of place where we can make a difference. And I don't think anybody will uh, feel upset that they don't get to redact a document. Well, on the chatbots, the one reason I mention is because, you know, sometimes I it takes a dilemma like the one we're in mm -hmm. to make, you know, clients or anybody look at it and see the value that, you know, these chatbots have. And by example, you know, we've obviously had this pandemic that continues. I don't know when it's going to end, but uh, and we've had unemployment associated with it. So we're working with states, by example, and I'm sure you are, too, that, you know, and, and I'll get the numbers wrong, but, you know, they're, they're taking a few thousand calls yesterday. Now they're taking a few hundreds of thousands of calls because, you know, like they're asking questions, is my school open? What, what are the mask rules? Where do I get my unemployment check? You know, all these things that weren't, you know, questioned yesterday. 
and the spike is just impossible. You're not going to get to anybody. But if you have AI that can help you, and that's a very great use case for AI in terms of automating some of those calls and the answers, and some of them are repetitive for that matter, though AI doesn't need to be repetitive in all cases. I mean, it's just a perfect use case to help a business. Otherwise, you you know, you're you're dead in the water. You're, you're spot on. I think you're exactly right. I remember probably about two years ago, we built a bot and these were to help with hurricane preparedness. And, and like you said, the, the example, because I used to live in South Florida for a number of years. And when a hurricane hits, everything gets overwhelmed, right? The normal systems get flooded and you need answers. So the bot was able to assist with answering basic questions like, where are the evacuation routes? Where can I get this? Where can I get that? It's critical. The question then becomes, as to your point, could we extend that? Could this automation put a little bit more oomph behind how many questions and how complex question can we handle and do even more for the citizen to what degree we can provide that kind of service? So that leads me perfectly liaison into the challenges. And a lot of the challenges I see out there are skills. You know, we already talked about privacy, security, managing a huge, huge data set when you're talking about government or any client for that matter, but government certainly. I think government, particularly when we're talking about military or otherwise, I think they like to control the IP where they want to edit models themselves versus, you know, a lot of the companies that are providing AI saying, you know, look, we that's our IP. We don't want you to do that. So I guess my question is, maybe I'm answering some of it for you, but a lot of these are are similar to the private sector. My question is, is how is government different from the private sector? And, you know, are there parameters that make it slower or faster? I mean, what are your thoughts there? A couple thoughts. I mean, first, there was for a time this sense that we got to get all our data right before we can do anything. And since there's lots and lots of data and getting it all right before we do anything, that'll be a long time in coming. And, and I think that there's increasingly a belief that it'd be nice, but that's a goal and it'll never be all right to use. We got to use what we have and make sure it's as clean as we can make it where we can, but put it to work the way we have it. And I, I believe that's been an evolutionary process as people have been adopting that philosophy. To some extent, I think in the commercial world, there was a sense of use what you got, experiment, see what you learn, and then do something better. But let's not create the giant data model before we take step number one. Uh, so there's perhaps some convergence there. I believe another place where government is making some strides is there's, as you said, vast amounts of data, but much of that data exists in silos within organizations, in pockets of organizations. And if you pick a very large agency, there might be dozens of these silos of very large data sets that have some relevance and usefulness in making decisions. And this is where policy kicks in. How do you create the agreements to share that data? Both share that data within the organization and share that data outside with commercial organizations to use it. And within the context of the transparency and the privacy rights being properly protected. With that in place, then I think you can get to the point that you could answer questions which would have much more relevant answers because you've brought together in, in an agency five different data sets that are very complementary potentially, but generally have been only used independently with the IT systems that are in place today. 
And as that starts to change, then I think that that convergence, you know, with commercial will be much stronger. I believe it'll happen. I think that there is a understanding and there have been some incentives to make information available to see what can be done with it to make it useful. At the same time, I think we got to recognize some data will not leave government control uh, because it either is PHI or it contains some very sensitive information about individuals. And while it could be used in a lot of different ways, the government doesn't want it to turn into a marketing tool necessarily. Uh, It's supposed to be used for a very prescriptive purpose uh, as it relates to a citizen. So there'll need to be some boundaries, but I believe that there'll be more desire to let commercial enterprises make proper use of data where it's uh, relevant, uh, as long as it's well-controlled, and to start converging it within the government as well to make better decisions. Pleasure uh, having a chat with you. Thank you for being on the show today. It has been a great chat. Very easy. I love chats like these. So uh, you're very knowledgeable, Claude, and I appreciate you being here and sharing that with us. Oh, thank you for the time. And uh, it was a pleasure. I hope people find it useful. I know that they will. Thank you. All you listeners, again, as always, we greatly appreciate it. Hit us on almartintalksdata at gmail.com if you have any comments, questions, or suggestions. Uh, Otherwise, we'll see you on the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcasts to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, let's go over and out. Oh.